we were looking at the, the broad and the narrow gates, yeah. right? And we talked about the importance of truth and, and how truth is not relative. How is it objective truth? Which just means that truth by definition cannot be based off of opinion or relative fact, right? It's got to have, it's a true fact, which means truth by truth but means, right? Does that make sense? That, you know, there is no, it's not based off your emotional opinion. And, and Jesus really starts to kind of drop the hammer down within specificity as we look at the, the passage we're looking at today. Um, I call this sermon True or False. And did you guys ever, like, take tests that were true or false? Did you ever like those? I always really liked that part of the test because I knew I had a 50% shot of getting this right. Right? You give me multiple choice, it's like, oh, there's a good chance I'm not getting this one. Right? But I always enjoyed that part of the test because it was always a 50% chance of getting it right. Of course, there's also a 50 chance of getting it wrong, but that kind of tells you my mindset. So I take those odds any day. Right? But Christ is very specific in that he, we don't have to make that guess. When he talks about truth, he talks about the fact he's giving us a fact. He's giving us the truth in his word. Amen? And so we don't have to sit and try to guess if this is a 50% chance of being right or wrong. He gives it to us straight so that we can know. He's not going to throw us out there based on a relativity, but on a sense of, of truth and fact. Because God gives us the answer key. And so we're going to look at that, how it relates to prophets. And I know, especially in this culture, right, it's really easy to, to want to view what is a prophet. And, and we're going to look at that, but I don't want to... Um, you know, come after the particular religion of this culture in particular, but I want to look at it in the sense of a broad scope. And what does the Bible say about true prophets and false prophets? And I'll let you get, feel more equipped in being able to discern that. And that's kind of my objective today. If you can leave today understanding how to be more discerning in truth and be able to see what's false, true within what the Bible says and what someone else is saying, including what I say. I hope, I hope all of you keep me accountable to whatever I'm saying. If I say something that goes against God's word, I'm hoping that you'll call me out on it, maybe in private, not in a little service. But um, but yeah, I'm hoping that's that's the fact. So let's pray, and we'll, we'll go into the message here. Father, again, it's just a humbling experience to be called your servant, be called your friend, be called a child of God, adopted into the sonship. And I just pray that this message will fall on open hearts, that we won't leave these doors unchanged, that we will have a deeper understanding of your word today, that we have a deeper understanding of your love for us, that you want to edify us, that you want to encourage us, that you want us to live a life equipped to go out into the world to make an impact for you, for your kingdom. To direct our dreams, to direct our visions to, to people who need to hear your word, to hear your truth. Lord, and this is a message that you gave us directly while you were here on earth, and it's, it's so impactful and so important that we get this right, that we understand what your heart is behind this. I thank you, Lord. In your name, amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, which I hope all of you do in either digital or paper copy, we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 7 today, verses 15 through 19. So again, like I said before, last week we looked at 
the broad gate and the narrow gate. So Jesus is just saying, listen, there's, there's only one way. And that's through me, truth, through the narrow gate. I am the narrow gate is what he's saying, right? So the next part, he starts talking about, or we're going to look at is he looks at prophets. And we're going to look at what is a prophet, Old Testament, New Testament, and jump in from there. And then what he says in regarding that, and then how are we to respond to that? So let's, if you have your Bibles, read with me chapter 7, verse 15 through 19. Jesus says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. It's cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Okay. Interesting. Let's look at this. So, the first thing I want to look at is, I'll talk a little bit about prophets. What is a prophet? So, true and false prophets aren't, aren't anything new. We, it's not like the 21st century, just all of a sudden we have false prophets. Right? God's been speaking about these for thousands and thousands of years. They've been there a while. But the word prophet comes from the Greek word prophetes, which just means pro or before, and pro means before, and then claim. So they're before claiming, right? And so they're claiming to speak God's word, and they're also, a lot of times, they're speaking ahead of time of God's word. Does that make sense? So that's the Greek word of it, but if you look at the Old Testament, and that's what I want to look at first, is what was a prophet's role in the Old Testament, and then we'll look at the New Testament. In Hebrew, the most commonly word, commonly known word for Hebrew that we call Nabi. And what that just means is one who is called. So we don't have this idea of what a, a, a propetes is until the Greek comes, but it was somebody who was called. And we have a lot of examples of them. We have both men and women. You know, Miriam, Deborah, Huldah were all women who were called prophets of God. We have the, you know, obviously the big ones, Moses, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And then you see they're not just one person at a time. In 1 Samuel 10:5, we see a band of prophets were called. So we see this time in Old Testament that it wasn't just one person. There were a bands of prophets that, that wandered and prophesied. But most of all, they were called God's mouthpiece to Israel, to Israel at the time of the Old Testament. So they're called Israel back to God. They were kind of the, the big warning sign, right? We, we talked about last week, I mentioned how Jesus was giving us a warning as far as like, don't take the broad path or the broad gate, take the narrow gate, the narrow path. You guys remember that? In Old Testament time, God used the, the prophets to speak to the Israelites and say, listen, if you keep doing this, you remember that Mosaic covenant you said that, I, that God told us about? If you keep walking down this path, you keep worshiping Baal, there's going to be ramifications of your actions. Same thing that Jesus is doing with us in the New Testament. But I like the term called covenant enforcement mediators. That's kind of what they were, covenant enforcement mediators. And they never shared their own personal opinions. You think those, I mean, being an Old Testament prophet must have been rough. You look at Elijah, Elisha, not to get confused. They delivered some harsh messages and a lot of times weren't well received. I think we should be able to relate to some of that as a Christian. Where sometimes we have to deliver harsh messages that aren't well received. Mm -hmm. 
But Exodus 4.12, you, you, you can read a lot about some of the, the harshness that comes to the prophets. But they informed Israel that God doesn't just give his law. He also enforces it. I think it's important to remember that. That he doesn't always just give his law, but he also enforces it. Look at the Mosaic Covenant. Again, the, the conditional covenants where he says, if you do this for me, Israel, then I'll do this for you. That's the conditional covenant. We live in the time of a new covenant, which is not a traditional, a conditional covenant. But that's what they were living in. They were living in a conditional covenant time. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. You obey my law, I'll do this for you, I'll bless you. And he does. He saves them from invasion, keeps them alive. They're still around. Have you noticed that? The Jews are still here. Look at the Phoenicians. Where are they at? Where are the Canaanites? I'm a Moabite, but not really the same. <laughs> and then less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy is Masonic and less than 5% is New Covenant in nature so when we read about the, the, the Messiah to come and the New Covenant it's always in this aspect of hope of, of what is to come so when, the, when they're talking about Messiah you look at Jeremiah, you look at um, Isaiah all of these great messianic texts it's always about it really sucks right now, but there's going to be this hope in the future. But right now, you guys have to turn and repent from what is happening. right? But there's going to be a king that comes. There's going to be a, a David that comes that rescues us from all of this. But it's, only, it's a very small portion of, of what the actual prophecies come from. And then I think um, if, you, if you turn to 2 Peter for me. Sorry, I keep popping here. 2 Peter 1. 20 through 21. I'm going to pull it up too. Apparently I didn't put it in my notes. This is a good exercise for you guys to have to try to find it. So easy to just turn a, a digital on and look for it. We'll do a race. You can find it quicker. Oh, man. I already lost. It's so such a small book. It's easy to lose it. Okay. So first Peter... Or Second Peter, sorry. Ha <laughs> ha. There you go. Chapter one, verses twenty through twenty-one. This kind of gives us an idea of where the prophets got their abilities. I guess that's a good word to say it. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's an interesting passage. So the prophet never speaks from their own will. And so a true prophet will look at it and go, this is God's word. I'm proclaiming the word of God. And that's very important, right? Because it's really easy to, for anybody to stand up and say, guess what? In, in 20 years, the world's going to end. We see a lot of those. Right? I think there's a lot of religious organizations that have stemmed from, it's going to end in 1912. 1912 comes, oh, we got it wrong. 1930, 1930 comes, nothing happens. You know, it's, it's, not their, it's not the prophet's will, but it's God's will through his word. And so for us, we have to understand what God's word is. And in their time of the Old Testament, this was the same thing. So they were speaking, carried along by the Holy Spirit, by God's spirit, is what they'll say in the Old Testament. So in the whole Bible, there's, there's always a lot of how do we understand where the prophets got their, their abilities to, to speak? It comes from the Holy Spirit, from God's Spirit. 
and it doesn't come from themselves. It's not their interpretation of things, which is something that we can fall into, right? Well, this is how I interpret things, or this is how you interpret things. And then we're just kind of, let's agree to disagree. No, how does God interpret things? What does he look at this world and say it is? Again, truth, objective, not relative. And that carries over to the New Testament. So let's look at the New Testament now. And what does God say about prophets in the New Testament? Now, it's important to realize that for 400 years, God was silent. It's what we call the intertestamental period, to use a big, scary seminary word that I learned. <laughs> now, this is basically until John the Baptist and Jesus joined the scene. So John the Baptist came first, and obviously and Christ came and fulfilled that. But what we saw was that we no longer need a mouthpiece because Christ has become our mouthpiece. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, if you want to turn to that with me, I beat all of you because I had it marked. It says, in the past, I'll stop right there. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, that's important, you should have that circled. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So what he's saying is like in the past, during the Old Testament, God used the prophets to speak into the lives of Israelites, to share with them what they needed, right? They had the law, and they had prophets, but he says, in these last days, in the time of the new covenant, in these times of, of, of Christ and post-Christ, and waiting for his return, he says, his word sustains all things. He sustains us by his powerful word. And he has been appointed by all things, heir of all things. So we see the shift that no longer do we need a, a number of band of prophets or a prophet to lead us or tell us where we're wrong. He says, no, I will sustain, God's saying, I will sustain you by my powerful word, by the word, of, by the word of Christ. He then fulfills and stands in that seat, in that position. And then Pentecost introduces a new thing. It's called the gift of prophecy, which is another thing, right? So a lot of us, and I know a lot of you, have actually spoken into my life. If we look at it, if prophecy means to proclaim the word of God and to speak the word of God, then a lot of you have done that in my life when you speak where God into my life. And there's a lot of people who have done that to encourage and edify. And that's what the, the New Testament says. We, we see Pentecost in Acts 2, 17 through 18. But also prophecies were widespread among the early church. If you look at Acts 11, 28, Agabus predicts a famine in the Roman Empire. So we still see this idea of, of that God still gives us the ability to predict things that will happen if it's for that. So the, the gift of prophecy allows us to do that. We also see the, the four daughters of Philip, who were called prophetesses. Prophetesses? Is that what it's Prophetesses. Okay. That's Acts 21.89. So not only did they foretold, but, but they also, and this was probably the main role, was to encourage the body of Christ. So the gift of prophecy is there to encourage and edify the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, But the one who prophesies speak, speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, comfort. So it's not about me saying tomorrow a train's going to bust through this church. I don't know, that seems really just weird analogy. I don't know why I use that. But it's saying, hey, you know, I'm going to prophesy. I'm going to speak encouragement. I'm going to speak comfort. I'm going to speak 
God's word because that's what it does. God's word should encourage you, should build you up, should give you a comfort and ability, especially if you belong to him. The primary purpose of the prophetic ministry is to strengthen, encourage, and comfort believers. And then 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4, kind of paraphrase, the one who prophesies edifies the church. So again, it's not on the prophet. It's purely on the people, on his church. Right? He's used as an edification and encouragement to the body of Christ. So the gift of prophecy introduced him at Pentecost carries with it the, the ability of a prophet to both foretell, but the main role is actually to edify and encourage. And many of you have done that in my life. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, The false messiahs and false prophets will appear, appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So here we start getting to some of the false prophet ideas. We understand what a prophet is, Old New Testament, what the prophecies, what it means to prophet, what is a prophet, and what a prophecy. But then Jesus talks about the fact that there's a false messiahs and false prophets will appear. It doesn't say that they may appear. It says that you will run into those. You will find them. And if you just Google false messiahs, you'll find plenty of them. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think that they're the return Jesus, unfortunately. And they'll even deceive. And they'll even deceive the chosen, the elect, depending on which translation you choose. The believers will even be deceived by these false prophets and false messiahs. The one thing that I've seen and and thing I've noticed before is if somebody speaks differently than what God's word is, it cannot be from God. God's word does not contradict itself. So if somebody says something that contradicts the word of God, which things do you choose? Do you choose the word of God or do you choose this person? The word of God. The word of God. Good, that was an easy answer, right? So therefore, everything must be tested. So whenever we have a prophecy, whenever we hear something, talking to somebody, whatever it is, I mean, it could be secular, it could be religious, whatever it is, it must be tested. It must be tested. You must understand the word of God. That's the first rule, Mm -hmm. right? If you can't understand the word of God, then you're never going to be able to discern so, how do we tell if a prophet is from God, and what do we do? Right. So we talked a little bit about that. Obviously, um, it doesn't contradict God's word, but actually, um, the Old Testament gives us quite a few examples of what to do and how to turn, or how to dis- how to discern a false prophet. So let's look at the Bible. Biblical verses that help discern a false prophet. Deuteronomy thirteen two through three is a good one. I'll read it for you. It says, And if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, this is a false prophet. Now they can, did you know that God even talks about that? They may perform something wonder. They may even do something that you're like, wow, maybe, maybe they are from God. He says, even if they do that, and the prophet says, let us follow other gods and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. Ooh. So he could say, he may, this, this person may perform marvelous wonders and do miraculous signs, but if he says, points you anything other than what God's done, then he's false. Amen. Is he following the real God? Is he following the, the true God? Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22 says, You may say to yourselves, How can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? 
If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has been spoke, has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. So that's what he says. Is like if, if the prophet talks about something that should happen in the future and it doesn't happen, I love, I love what God tells us here. He says, don't worry about it. Just brush it off your shoulder. That's probably better, right? And then I love that God says, do we go after the prophets, Lord? Do we, you know, do we, do we confront them? He says, you just don't worry about it. Don't be alarmed by it. How many people are going to prefer, you know, proclaim the end of the world next year, right? I think there was one this year. Wasn't there someone proclaiming September or something like that of this year? 23rd, yeah. And so I think it was, it was with the eclipse probably. And it was... I mean, you just, it doesn't happen. You just don't be alarmed by it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. Don't fret about it. Don't waste your time thinking about that. And then Jeremiah 14, uh, verses 14 and 16 says, Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and delusions of their own mind. I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. So then he talks about these prophets who are going to talk about false visions, divinations, idolatrous, which means false gods. They're talking about gods who aren't there, multiple gods. If you look at the, the times, delusions of their own mind, they want these things to be real. But again, truth versus relativity. Things I want to be real aren't necessarily truth. And then what's it, in verse 16, he says, I will pour out them the calamity they deserve. Do we pour out the calamity they deserve? No, we don't. He says, I will do it. God takes that seat of judgment. God takes that seat of justice. I think too often as Christians, we feel the responsibility. Like maybe we have to take that, that seat of justice and, and judgment and go after somebody. That's not what Christ said, right? <clears throat> He says to discern what they say, not worry about what they say, and just love. Now, there's this difference between, I should note, is it between acceptance and affirmation. Now, we accept everybody. We're all sinners saved by grace. Amen? Yeah, amen. So we accept every single person, but we don't affirm always what they do. I think too often we, we get try to accept, but we still have to, we try to affirm too. Like, well, in order to accept them, I have to affirm what they're doing. No, you don't. You really don't. You can accept them as a human being without affirming what they do. So let's look at the second part here. We, th- we talked about false prophets, and we know kind of what to do and how to, how, to, how to find them, how to discern. But then God says twice, by their fruit you will know them. Now, this is something I've run into a lot in this culture. I, how many of you have, have heard this before? You're talking with somebody and you said, well, by their fruit you'll know them, and they're doing good things, therefore they must be true. Right? They give to the poor. They, they give to the needy. They're, they have good fruit, right? But good, quote, quote, good people, of course there's no one good, yeah. and we know that from the Bible, does not mean that they're, they're doing what is good in the eyes of God. It may be in the eyes of us, right? We may look at that and go, wow, they're doing great stuff. By their fruit, you will know them. 
But what does, who defines good? God does. Psalm 18.30 says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. But the word of the Lord proves true. He is the one that says, this is true. It's not up to us to say, you know what, that's good. I mean, giving to the poor is great, right? I'm not going to say that's not good. But preaching a false god is a lot, is not good. Or prophesying in the name of idolatry or, or plurality of gods or a false hope within a broad gate, let's say, is not good. The overall question I want to bring is, does their message bring life? Does a prophet's message bring life or does it bring death? Again, broad gate, narrow gate. And I, and I firmly believe that even a false prophet, they want to be a sheep. They, you know, when it talks about wolves and, and, and ravenous sheep clothing, they want to be sheep, I think. Right? I don't think they go into it thinking, I, I can't wait to be a wolf. Wolf? Oh, wolf. Amy makes fun of me all the time. Wolf. They don't want to be wolves. They want to be sheep. But what does he say? He says internally. There's something internally. There's a heart issue going on that proves that they're not a sheep. And that, in wolves, I don't know if you know this about nature, but they kill sheep. Unfortunately, that's, I mean, a truth fact. <laughs> So I'm sure many false prophets, they want to be right, but they knowingly oppose the perfect truth of God, or they, they would rather be ignorant towards it. Unfortunately, that is a lot of our society. Well, as long as I don't know about it, I just don't have to, I, I won't be judgment to it, right? I don't want to live that way. Who wants to live in ignorance? And God says, you don't have to. I've given you this. In my perfect word, it will sustain you, as Hebrews 1 says. So we see this played out mostly in what we call false gospel. You hear this a lot, false gospel. And I think that's one way and one way that I wanted to focus more on, at least today, as far as where the, the false prophets love to sit in camp is in these false gospels. How do we get to the good news? How do we get back to heaven? How do we, um, who is Christ? Who is God? All of these things, right? That's encapsulated within false gospel and the prophet's and a false prophet will love to camp in that. So let's talk about that. Galatians 1, 6 through 9 is, is probably one of my favorite places to kind of sit as far as what Paul's talking about in false gospel. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Mm-hmm. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel that other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. And what curse means there is anathema. It means to be separated from the body. And you look at it, God likes to talk within brine, you know, brines, vines and branches. right? And so this anathema, is you can see it within his analogies as far as let them be separated from the vine. Let them be pulled away. So let's look at that. Anyone who preaches a false gospel, and Paul, there's a lot of within Paul, what Paul says there, but 
there's a few things that I wanted to hit on. Deserting when the one called to you to live in the grace of Christ. So he talks about there's going to be teachers, there's going to be prophets out there who say, grace of Christ isn't sufficient. We all know that. We live in Utah. But he says this is, there's going to be people who say you, that's not good enough. That the grace of Christ isn't big enough. And they're going to turn you to a different gospel. But by gospel, by definition, means good news. So he's saying there's, there's this good news, but there's also this false good news that sounds like good news. Right? This is what I think Jesus is talking about. In Matthew, he starts talking about false messiahs, false prophets. He says, a lot of you are going to want this falseness. You're going to want that. Your, your, your body, your flesh is going to yearn for it in a way. Like, oh, I want this to be true. But he says, there's no gospel at all. It's not even good news because it's not the narrow gate good news. Mm-hmm. It's a broad good news. Mm-hmm. And he talks about these people. Some people, these false, false teachers, false uh, prophets, you could call them, are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, which is, again, the grace of Christ. But even if we were an angel from heaven, so he says even, even if there's an angel comes out and says, this is, this is the good news, if it's different than what the Bible teaches, it's still false. Boy, imagine that one, right? An angel comes to you and says, says, this is how this is the gospel, and you have to you have to rebuke the angel in your bedroom or something, right? Even if an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than that, we should then when we preach, let them be anathema, separated from the vine. So a false gospel is a false hope. An enslavement, and therefore cannot lead you through truth. Because truth is in the embodiment of Christ. He is the character of truth. And so if you believe in something that's, that's not the biblical Christ, false Christ, false Messiah, as you could call it, that your, your, your hope is in something that's not God. You're enslaved into something that is not from God. So the narrow path must come through Christ. Any other broad path is just another deception that leads you to destruction, as we looked at last week. So Christ is talking about the same truth and false, but he's talking about it through teachers and prophets. 2 Peter 2, 18-19 says, Speaking loudly boasts of folly, they, these are false prophets or false teachers, enticed by sensual passions of the flesh. So you look at even secular and religious prophets. Did you know there's prophets within secularism too? People who proclaim good news? I talked about this a little bit last week, but do you remember, you ever heard those saying, just do whatever makes you feel good? That is a false prophecy. That is right out of, they entice you by sensual passions of the flesh, because if I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do, and I wasn't, and trust me, this is pre-saved Kelly, that's exactly how I lived. You can't tell me what to do with my body. We hear that a lot. Think of all the, the children that are being aborted every day. And what's the argument? It's my body. You, tell me, you can't tell me what to do with it. That's the, the pro-choice argument that we hear. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error, 
They promise them freedom. So there's another thing. A false prophet promises you freedom. It's a false freedom. But they themselves are slaves to corruption. So they'll say one thing, but inside they're still slaves to whatever is holding them. They're slaves to corruption, but they promise you freedom. For whatever outcomes overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. The Bible speaks on this. He says, you can be slaves of the flesh, and you can be slaves to righteousness. The only thing that makes us righteous is, is God, is Christ, what he did for us, what he covers us, right? I'd much rather have my hope in that where I have no control, and I just have to trust than having to live a life that I have to feel like I have to keep doing more or I have to keep improving myself in some way because you're never going to get to the end and say, I did it all by myself. It's a false, it's, a, it's an enslavement. So false gospel sounds like good news, but in fact it is a terrible snare. It seems good and fruitful, but in fact it is not. It actually leads death. So, when you say, by their fruit, you will know them, look at what the message is. Where does the message ending? Does it end on, it's on you? Does it end on, you can do whatever you want? Does it end on, I have life through Christ? Because that's how we discern. Where does the message end? So despite signs and wonders, where does this message you believe in end or depend? Is it on yourself? Or is it on the cross? Because the cross is hated in a lot in this culture, in a lot of ways. Where does your message come from the Bible or from a different voice? Is it a biblical voice, or where did you hear that message? When people try to tell me about the falseness of the Bible or um, the inaccuracies of the Bible, and coming from a historical degree, that's what I got my undergrad in, it's, it's kind of silly to think that's even an argument. But I like to ask people, where did you hear that? Were you told that, or did you find that out yourself? Because most people are told that it's inaccurate. I can't trust the Bible. Why? Who told you that? Well, it was this person. It was my teacher. It was this guy from church. Interesting. Because historically, archaeologically, it's the most accurate book in the history of mankind. Amen. Studied, I studied the Hellenistic period in college, which studied everything from Caesar, Alexander, Herodotus, Thucydides, all of these Greek names, and all of these great historical writers, and nobody ever says anything about their accuracy. They're always like, yep, we trust it. This, is, this must have been how it was. You know, Anything you know about Greek history comes from these guys. But you know how many copies we have of those? Maybe nine or ten copies that we have of, of that age. And no one says anything about the corruption. No one says anything about them missing anything. You know how many copies we have of the New Testament? 20,000. Across the whole entire Mediterranean, from Spain, Egypt, Turkey, all saying the same thing. Dating back to 30 AD. 
And we have the Old Testament dating before Christ. Dead Sea Scrolls, you heard of that? And it says exactly the same what we had before we had the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Masoretic texts. It's exactly the same. So where did you hear that from? Not from history. Not from archaeology. Does, it differ, does the message differ than this? 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Read that again. Remember that? Look at that first part. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. But the cross and what God did on the cross, what does it do? We can now live for righteousness. We have died to sin, and by his wounds we have been healed. The payment took place on the cross. Romans 8.3, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sacrifice, to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. We don't need law. Because the law was powerless. Joe and I just went over this in our Romans class. But the law was powerless to do because we are weak in our flesh and so he sent Jesus Christ and in the likeness of sin and flesh, which means he was in the likeness of a man to be a sin offering. All of those offerings that took place in the Old Testament were just preludes to what was to come. That there was going to be an offering to trump all offerings. And that was going to be on the cross, the altar on the cross, the perfect sacrifice. And so in that, he condemned the sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. I'm just going to share my heart a little bit with you guys because it's tough. You know, living as a Christian, one in a post-Christian culture, the United States is, is very much in a post-Christian culture. Living in, in Utah County is always tough. I mean, I was just have, having a, a meeting with it's probably four or five pastors Ranging, you know, they've been here for ranging 12 years to one year as myself. And we were just talking about how this is probably one of the toughest places in the country to be a Christian. And to, especially to, quote unquote, do ministry. There is nothing else like this in, in this country. People have to travel thousands of miles to foreign worlds to have the same experiences and the same trials that we have. And you, you get to walk out and, and enjoy it in your backyard. <laughs> and so I just, I like to talk a little bit about, you know, we, we're going to come across false prophets. We come across them every day. You know, what do we do with that? And how do we act around that? And I think the key is, is love. I think the key is is truth and love. 
showing them and telling them what is true, but in a loving fashion. I think too many times, you know, we try to be the, you know, the radical, you know, share the fire, turn and burn type message. And I see that, I see that all over the country or whatever it is. And it's, I just don't, I don't see the effectiveness of it. I mean, there might be, I mean, I, God can do whatever he wants. He can turn people in that kind of a regard. But in my own experience, I've seen a whole lot more people come to Christ when I just get to share with them who he is. You want to know the truth? Just let me tell you about who Jesus is and about the characteristic of who he is and what he's done. To me, that is way more powerful than, than repent or die kind of a thing, right? Because when you understand the grace of God, when you understand the grace found in Christ and what, and what, the, what God actually did, you can't help but repent. It just leads you to that. It's, it's, it's God's loving patience and kindness that leads you to repentance. Not his wrath. Amen, right? Amen. It's that's what brings it. So we need to approach false teachers, false prophets within a sense of patience and love, compassion. And that's how we discern it. We look at it by what their message is and we discern, man, I just want to have coffee with that guy. Let's go have coffee and talk about why your message is, has a rough ending and not a good one. And why you may be snared in, in something that's not the hope in Christ, the grace of Christ. That's easy to do. That's fun to do. I don't know who you are, but that I don't care what your personality is. That's fun. Like when you can go out and just have a one-on-one conversation talk about Jesus for an hour, that's fun. Mm-hmm. And people appreciate that. They appreciate the relationships that occur from that. And hopefully there's people and you're kind of thinking in your little Rolodex in your head of, of people who, who need to hear that message, who need to hear that. Maybe they've said something and you're just like, wow, that's, that's not right. Because when you understand the word of God, false teaching kind of sounds like, a, like someone who speaks in an accent where you're, you're like, what'd you say? How'd you say mountain? Layton? My Utah accent. <laughs> It sounds off, doesn't it? Like maybe grammatically it doesn't sound right. And so you just got to meet with them and talk about why it is that they, where does their message come from? And where does their message end? And then you get to share Jesus and talk about this is his message and this is where his message ends. And he will always be true. You know, as I wrap up, the gospel always demands a response. I don't care if, if you've been walking with the Lord for, for 30 years or this is your first time ever hearing this. The gospel always demands a response. And when I, when I read the Bible and I, I study anything in it, I always have to make my, I have to kind of sense, well, I have to respond to this. I mean, you can read this book and not ever change. Did you know that? You can read this book and just decide, I'm not going to live by whatever this is or I'm not going to to apply whatever the principle is teaching me. You can do that. You can live that life. But if you respond to what the word is, you'll live a transformed life. I don't know you, but I want to live a transformed life every day. I want to understand God deeper every day. So as we pray, I just want to talk to you. You know, the first group is, is the believers in the house. 
people who, who follow Christ. And I want you to respond as far as, are we going to just turn the shoulder to false prophet, false teaching? Or are we going to attack it in love, in truth? Because we understand truth, because we understand God. And we know Jesus. He knows us. He calls us a friend. Co-heirs with Christ. That there is a power that lives inside of you that is just waiting to come out. Yearning, groaning to come out. When you see people, do you see people who have wronged you? Do you see people who maybe look different than you? Or do you see people who need Christ? Because again, you can live your whole life and not share a single truth about Jesus. I don't want to do that. So if that's you and you're ready to start, this is it. You've known God. I don't, I don't know for how long you've known him, but it, if you're ready to say, that's it, I am, I'm going to start sharing the truth and love with my neighbors, with my family, with my coworkers, whoever it is within your sphere of influence, just raise your hand. Say, this is it. you got to respond to it. Yeah, good. Good. I'm raising it with you. I love it. Now, for those who may not know Christ or, or, or believe in a Christ who is different than the one I shared with you today, it's your turn. Because there is only one way. There is not multiple ways. There is one way through the biblical Jesus. And he may be calling you right now saying, this is it. This is truth. And you can either reject it or respond to it. Trust me, I rejected it multiple times before I actually responded to it. But God in his mercy was continually seeking me, continually after me every day until finally I just crippled and fell on my knees and said, fine, you win. I'm yours. And I've never turned back. It's the best thing I've ever done. Hands down. I helped create that little baby over there. So if that's you and you want to know Christ in a deeper level, you want to experience his comfort, his love, his joy, his salvation, that is free of, from the law, that is free from, from your own personal works, then you can just trust and have hope in the, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Just raise your hand. Just respond. It's so simple. That's it. Amen. 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 Great. Let's pray.